Hello, friends. We're thrilled to have you here at Valley Beit Midrash here in our great partnership with Bethel. Very excited to continue to expand Torah learning and partnership here in the Valley for um, uh, soul enriching and mind expansive learning. Today, we're going to explore with uh, uh, Professor Daniel Steinkoken praying for the monsoon in Arizona liturgical adventure. <clears throat> We are delighted to have our great partner from Bethel, Rabbi Nitzan Stein-Koken, here to offer us the introduction before we jump in. Thank you for being here, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Shmuley, for um, bringing this event to the community uh, with Valley Bet Midrash. And I am honored to introduce my own husband, who, who has so many fields of interest. Let, let me give his credits first and then a little personal introduction too. So Daniel has earned his BA in classics from the University of Chicago and his PhD in cultural intellectual history from Harvard. And then we've together journeyed throughout his academic career to Jerusalem, to Yale, the University of Oregon, UCLA, and the University of Greifswald in Germany. And now, most recently, while I have the rabbinate here at Bethel, he's a visiting researcher at Arizona State University. Um, and I can attest to how broad his interests are. He's a true Renaissance man. Um, he's, as I said, studied Renaissance humanism, Christian Kabbalah, Jewish visual culture, Israeli film, music, European studies. Uh, and he's created um, not only academic research, but also academic dramatic hybrid performances, including the Preach of Protocols, Revisiting Science Elders, which explores and subverts the notorious protocols of the elders of science. He also did earlier this year inversions and subversions uh, devoted to the oldest known Hebrew language play, Leone de Somni's comedy of betrothal, which was written originally for Purim in the 16th century in Italy. He also is engaged in a project called All the Points, an online interactive map tracing the history of settlement of modern Israel and Palestine. And finally, as we see today, he also recently picked up on creating new litur liturgical texts that draw on the Jewish tradition and address contemporary concerns. And here comes the personal, throughout these last 20 years plus or so that we've been on the journey together as partners, Traveling alongside you, Daniel, I have learned even another area. I've learned from you how to look at the clouds, how to understand storm patterns. Um, historical weather data is uh, a regular um, topic <laughs> in our household. Uh, and so for me, it's beautiful to witness and be part of your hobby and your tremendous knowledge of Jewish text and history uh, that burst this beautiful modern prayer for, 
for rain using old traditions and creating and creating a new Hebrew literature liturgy and um, we actually we will say this prayer for Munzun this Shabbat at Beth El just before Musaf and the Musaf is the prayer where traditionally we put in the prayers for rain and dew um, on Passover and Sukkot and so please indulge us teaching your new prayer of the monsoon. All right, well, thank you so much, Rabbi. Um, and uh, thank you, Rabbi Shmuley. Uh, thanks to Bethel and to Valley Beit Midrash for the kind invitation to present this material. And thanks to all of you out there who are taking the time to watch it. I hope it'll be of interest and, uh, and meaning and sustenance for you. Okay, so I'm gonna now share my screen and uh, please do let me know if, uh, if you cannot see this, but hopefully you can see this. Yes. Um, whoops. Okay. But I want to try to make this. Uh, I want to try to make this complete here. There we go. That's okay. So, if there were ever a time to pray for the southwest monsoon, it would seem to be right now. Our entire region has experienced persistent drought since 1999. And the last two summers have been especially hot and dry. Here you see 2019, 2020, the brown, in case you're wondering, is not good. Uh, with that of 2020, raking is the hottest and driest in Arizona's recorded history. More than half of the state, not surprisingly, is now in the grip of exceptional drought, the most severe such category, while climatological data demonstrates that average precipitation is on the decline in Arizona, more so than anywhere else in the US. Much of that due to decreased monsoon rainfall. Here and here you can see specifically in Phoenix what's been going on recently. June 15th, two days ago, marked the official start of monsoon season, hence this week's designation as Monsoon Awareness Week. And as it happens, this week is likely to go down as one of the hottest, if not the hottest ever in Arizona. If that weren't enough, one of the largest fires in Arizona history is raging just a few miles to our east, periodically obscuring our skies with smoky haze. Finally, as we shall also see, this week's Torah portion, Hukat, is deeply concerned with the challenges of finding water in the desert. To recap, if there were ever a time to pray for a bountiful monsoon, that time is now. In today's talk, I would like first to explain how a scholar of Jewish studies who has not yet lived even two years in Arizona came to write such a prayer, and then to share and explore its text with you, particularly concerning how it relates to, builds off of, and responds to traditional liturgy. Thereafter, I will investigate some of the halachic, legal, and identity questions bound up with this endeavor, specifically with regard to the notion of local liturgy and of praying for rain outside the land of Israel, before turning in the closing section to the issue of prayer as environmental activism. All right, so that's the roadmap for today. And before I delve in further, let me just ask, I have, speaking of water, I have people working on my bathroom pipes uh, in, at home at the moment. Can you hear the background noise or are we okay? We're okay? All We're right. okay. Good to know. All right, so as you heard, uh, since my early childhood, I've been fascinated by weather. 
by the majesty of a towering cumulonimbus, the calm reassurance of a gentle rain, the magic of a snow-draped landscape, the utter strangeness, almost humor, of a hailstorm. Whenever I move to a new place, and God knows that's happened uh, on quite a few occasions, becoming familiar with and understanding its distinctive weather is for me part and parcel of coming to feel at home there. Reading the local meteorological discussion is part of my morning ritual, and when a storm approaches, I am keen to chart its progress. My head is quite literally in the clouds. Indeed, I would say that my identities as historian and as amateur meteorologist are very much bound up with one another, since both are concerned with discerning change amid the larger constants. So for years, I had known about the Southwest monsoon, that summer rainfall that supplies our region with 30 to 40%, and in some cases, even more than half of its annual precipitation. And it's what makes the Sonoran Desert the world's wettest desert. So when we came to Arizona in the summer of 2019, I was really looking forward to experiencing the monsoon firsthand in all its glory. And I'm still waiting. In addition, in recent years, as you heard, I began to compose liturgical texts on a range of topics. And so as I kept waiting for the monsoon to truly come into its own, I seized upon the idea of, of drawing upon the traditional Jewish prayer for rain to create a prayer specifically for the monsoon. And no doubt this project was also at a certain level about me trying to come to feel at home here in Arizona. So I started jotting down ideas, playing around with it, but had no real particular sense of urgency until this past fall, I enrolled in an online course sponsored by ritualwell.org, taught by the noted Jerusalem-based liturgist, Alan Solovey. Ritualwell, for those not familiar, is a clearinghouse for innovative Jewish liturgy and ritual sponsored by the Reconstructionist Movement, and um, this course provided just the right incentive and communal support for transforming my Tfilata Mansoon from, from concept to composition. And once it was written, I began to seek out opportunities to present it locally as here today. Thank you again for this opportunity. So the 19th century American essayist, Charles Dudley Warner, famously complained that everybody talks about the weather, but no one does anything about it. Well, while I certainly do not expect that reciting this prayer, as a number of congregations across the Southwest do plan to do this coming Shabbat, while I don't expect that it will deliver a bountiful monsoon, I am definitely trying in this prayer to do something about the weather. Indeed, I regard this prayer first and foremost as a kind of poetic replacement for a meteorological phenomenon in seeming decline, offering a kind of rain for the soul in the absence of rain for the soil. Nonetheless, if someone upstairs is listening and we get substantial rain this summer, no one will be more delighted than I. And Professor, now it's on to the Professor, text. just to pause you for one second, our screen is black. Is that intentional? It sure is. Okay, great. Thank you. Sorry, yeah. to, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no problem. All right. So, and I'll just say that two days ago was the official start of monsoon season and we had a little storm late uh, that night. So perhaps that's a, a positive sign for what's awaiting us this summer. Okay, so I'm going to now read actually the text of the prayer. And I, I'll say the outset, I recognize that it's a bit abstruse and esoteric at times. That's intentional because my aim is actually to transform the experience of prayer into also a pedagogical uh, opportunity. So I wanna first read it aloud in its entirety so that you can get a feel for it and what it tries to do. And thereafter, I'll spend some time explaining a number, but not all of its components. So if there's something in particular that strikes your fancy as I'm reading that you'd like to hear about, make a note of it for the Q&A. And I'm also happy to send anyone who is interested 
an annotated version of the text, just drop me a line here. Okay. Filata Mansun, a prayer for the monsoon. Today we do not thirst. Canal and pipe flow forever full. In morning sun sparkle backyard pools. But from no cistern can the cactus sip. For ponderosa pine no faucet drips. Since drought has dried soil and spring and flora and fauna pine for drink. And as we behold the parched landscape, can we not but meditate? and think that our desires and demands have brought us to the brink. So let us call upon the one who once declared, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter shall not cease, to rewind the winds that have woefully waned, restoring Sonoran summer's evening rains. And on this Shabbat Chukat, to renew the monsoon as Chukat. Eshiva mashiv haruach umorid gishmei malkosh, Cause the wind to return and blow, the monsoon rains to fall below. Remember our prophetess, the singer at the sea, the woman of the well, how upon her death in the desert, the flowing failed. And forgive the failing, the Israelites passing over her passing. 30 days long, they mourned her brothers, their sister, not one. Meshiv umashiv haruach, umurid gishmei malkosh, cause the wind to return and blow, the monsoon rains to fall below. Remember rod and rock, how they released. Sorry. Remember rod and rock, how they released a river, relieving and refreshing man and beast. And forgive our shepherd striking instead of speaking, our gulping instead of drinking, how the site of sanctification submerged in quarrel. Meshiv umashiv haruach, morid gishmei malkosh, Cause the wind to return and blow, the monsoon rains to fall below. Remember how when God assembled the people that they might drink, then Israel sang to the well, summoning its waters to rise anew. And forgive the motive for their chant, the crushed arms and legs of enemy troops washed away from Wadi Arnon's caves. Meshivu mashiv haruach, umorid gishmei malkosh, cause the wind to return and blow, the monsoon rains to fall below. Remember the queen, thanks to whose wise and steady reign, reigns every Sabbath fell, expanding barley, lentil, and grain. And forgive the voices that have silenced her name, voided her legacy, and foiled her fame. Meshiv umashiv haruach, umorid gishmei malkosh, cause the wind to return and blow, the monsoon rains to fall below. Remember the fallen Hopi fighter, first of her kind, though desert born and desert, desert dead, Pools of water accompanied her every step, and forgive the oppression that troubled her tribe and our foolish venture that cost her life. Meshiv umashiv haruach, umorid gishmei malkosh, cause the wind to return and blow, the monsoon rains to fall below. Remember the rounder of rounds, the repairer of roots, whose will you fulfill, bringing benevolence, blessing, and bounty to our land. And forgive the impertinence that brought first drizzle, thereafter flood. To grant, instead rain, to grant instead rains in due measure from above. Meshiv umashiv haruach umorid gishmei malkosh, lamidbar ulahar, lareches ulaemek. Cause the wind to return and blow, the monsoon rains to fall below, upon desert and mountain, ridge and valley. Benere kol Adonai, hotsev lahavotesh, benishma kol Adonai yachil midbar, 
נריח את בושם הקריוסות שהגשם מבשר ונרקוד בזרימת המבול את אבירינו מטהר. And we shall see the voice of the Lord forming fiery flames and hear the voice of the Lord shaking the desert. We shall smell the creosotes fragrance heralding rain and we shall dance amid the downpour's descent purifying our air. La rotev velo leyavesh, la male velo larek, la firya velo lashmama. For whiteness and not for dryness, for fullness and not for emptiness, for flourishing and not for barrenness. Please, God, restore our waters as before. Okay, so that's the prayer. Uh, and it rests upon four primary textual pillars. There is, of course, the post-flood passage from Genesis 8, 21, 22, where God promises that the general order of the world, specifically the seasonal order of the world will not change. And this you could say is reiterated in Psalm 148.6. God, where God indicates, where the text indicates that God made his creations endure forever, establishing an order that shall never change. This seems to me highly relevant in an age in which the scientific, scientific consensus holds that human activity is responsible for climate change. So it seems appropriate at this time to remind God of his promise and to ourselves it apprises us of the severity of what we are doing if in fact we are responsible for fundamentally challenging from a theological perspective an order that goes back to the recreation of the world post, post flood. The second textual pillar is the traditional statement in the Avot section of the Amidah recited three times daily between Shmini Atzeret and the start of Pesach, Mashiv Haruach Umorid Hagashem. God causes the wind to blow and the rain to fall. And I obviously use this as the basis for my chorus, Meshiv Mashiv Haruach Umorid Gishmei Malkosh. Now in exchanging Mashiv Haruach and replacing it with Meshiv Umashiv, I am playing upon the similar appearance in Hebrew of what are in fact two very different verbal roots. Return, as you see there, shin vav vet, or in the causative as here, cause to return, and nun shin bet, mashav, or blow, or here again in the causative, cause to blow. And doing this, placing, juxtaposing these two verbs, seem to me to capture the essential purpose of the prayer. Not only to cause the wind to blow, but indeed to cause that wind to return in the first place, as it was pretty consistently absent these last two years. And though especially relevant this year after these consecutive nonsense, as I've learned Arizonans like to say, the phrase in fact is suitable every year since it is in fact a change in the prevailing winds that is responsible for the monsoon. Actually, the monsoon itself is the change in the wind. So while you'll often hear people say, oh, it looks like we're gonna get a monsoon or that was quite a monsoon last night. And as understandable as that is, technically the term monsoon refers to the entire season and not to any particular storm, the entire season in which the typical westerly airflow over the Southwest, over our region, is replaced by one from the South that brings up tropical moisture from the Gulf of California and Gulf of Mexico and, and so forth. And this, this wind shift, or this seasonal wind shift is also reflected nicely in the actual source of the term monsoon, the Arabic verb wasama, meaning to mark or brand. 
which gave rise to the Arabic noun masim or season. Why this Arabic origin? Because of the Arabic the Arab domination during the Middle Ages over the spice trade in the Arabian Sea, the region best known for its monsoon. So as Portuguese traders arrived on the west coast of India in the early 16th century in places like Kerala and Goa, you can see Kochi there in the southern part of India, that's Kerala, uh, and Goa, which actually remained a Portuguese colony down to 1961, they transformed the Arabic term into the Portuguese monsao, which by the late 16th century gave rise to the English monsoon. So as I was playing around with all this, I considered extensively how I might best render monsoon into Hebrew, which lacks a distinct term for this phenomenon. And I played around with all kinds of possibilities. I thought of using ona, which is season, or moed, another word for season in Hebrew. I tried to calc the Arabic wasama via the Hebrew root cm, samech yod mem, but ona or tekufa mesuyemet didn't sound quite right. Played around with all kinds of things and nearly resigned myself to just using monsoon, monsoon, as I do in the prayer title for maximum subject recognition. But then it occurred to me that I might draw upon the classical Hebrew terms for seasonal rainfall, yore umalkosh, which referred to the early and late rain, respectively. Malkosh, which in an Israeli context refers to rain in Adar or Nisan, that is late winter, spring, or you know, Mar late March, April, May, uh, seemed a better fit here as the monsoon occurs toward the close of the Jewish year. Indeed, from the perspective of the Jewish year, it works rather well to conceive of early and late rain in Arizona, since there are typically two distinct precipitation peaks in the year here one in the late fall or winter, and the other in the late summer, divided by a bone dry spring. Now the locus classicus for Yoreh and Malkosh in the Tanakh, uh, recited twice daily in the context of the Shema, is Advarim 11.14, as you see here. I will grant the rain for your land in season, the early rain and the late. And it is also understood in the biblical text to be a reward uh, received in return for obedience to God's wishes. Twice in the prophet Jeremiah, here and here, we encounter the notion specifically of Malkosh being withheld for bad behavior, which of course could be catastrophic for agriculture and thus human survival. But it is another passage from the prophet Zechariah, which you see here that I placed on my opening slide, that struck me as almost an invitation to compose this prayer. Ask rain of the Lord in Malkosh season, of the Lord who makes lightnings, and he will give them showers of rain to on grass in the field. And this description struck me as perfect for the Arizona monsoon, which of course follows this thunderstorms. So now you know how I got to Meshivu Mashiv Haruach Umorid Gishmei Malkosh in the prayers chorus. Third key textual ingredient the traditional prayer for Geshem, Tfilat Geshem, recited on Shmini Atzeret during the Musaf Amidah, according to Eastern European Minhag. There's a different text used in the Western European tradition, a different text that Svardim traditionally use, but I'm referring here to uh, what's often referred to as Zahar Av from its beginning, remember the patriarch, that is to say Abraham. This classic feudal religious poem, written in late antique Palestine, perhaps by the renowned Peitan, the composer of feud of religious poetry, Eleazar Khalir, appeals to God to recall to mind our forefathers and other biblical heroes, noting how their lives were bound up with water in some form. 
So the idea is that in remembering them and their merit, God will be inclined to grant us the water we need. Uh, and we can counter this idea elsewhere in rabbinic literature. Why, for example, did God order Moses to speak to the rock, but not to smite it? One rabbinic midrashic answer is because the merits of those sleeping in the cave of Machpelah, our patriarchs and most of our matriarchs, are sufficient to cause their children to receive water out of the rock. Nothing more was necessary. So, and this period is written as a, as a riddle. The names of our ancient heroes are never actually mentioned explicitly in the text. And as such, the Zahor injunction to remember is thus, you could say, also directed at the worshipers, at the community as a whole. Do you guys remember? Can you figure out who is intended in each verse? I very much like this riddling element because as I noted, or because I regard liturgy as, as much about intra-community exchange as God community, God community, communi communication. In other words, for me, liturgy is not just about affirming and expressing a collective desire, it also represents an opportunity to educate, to shape communal values, indeed to challenge the community. Now along these same lines, if the traditional prayer for rain is all about memory as merit, I wanted by contrast to produce a text that evokes memory as responsibility. Uh, and this anticipates the environmental activist point to which I will turn shortly. By remembering, we are brought face to face with elements of our history, perhaps current behavior that are uncomfortable. Hence, I opted for alternating injunctions or appeals to remember uh, and forgive, as you heard. Furthermore, whereas the traditional Tfilat Hageshem refers solely to male figures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, and the 12 tribes as a metaphor for Israel as a whole, I wanted to be sure to include female voices as well. To be sure, probably the first to have had this idea, the new conservative Sidur Lev Shalem offers an alternative version of Tefillah Tegeshem, evoking Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, and Mary, that is to say four women against three men. But I didn't just want to include the usual male or female suspects, but to branch out a bit, especially as there are lots of great water associations in Jewish tradition. My prayer does of course refer to, uh, allude to Moses's sister, evoking the beautiful tradition that thanks to Miriam's merit, a well accompanied the Israelites in their wanderings in the desert, more on this in just a moment, but the much, much less well-known Salome Alexandra uh, is included as well. This Hasmonean queen, in Hebrew, she's known as Shlomzion Hamalka, is praised in early rabbinic sources, but not late ones, who silence her, hence the call here for forgiveness, for her competent rulership, piety, and support of scholars, in recognition of which, so the tradition goes, reign during her reign, fell regularly on Shabbat instead of during the week, so as not to interfere with agriculture, and to such a degree that wheat, gained, wheat grains became as large as kidneys, barley grains as large as olive pits, and lentils as large as gold dinar. There is thus a nice parallel, I think, between the traditions of Miriam's well, ever on the move amid the Israelites' desert wanderings, and that of Salome Alexandra's consistent sabbatical reigns in the settled land of Israel. And finally, given that this piece is concerned with the regional phenomenon, as much of concern to non-Jews as to Jews, it felt appropriate to include a local non-Jewish figure. Around the time that I was composing the text, I happened to be on one of my weekly walks in the Phoenix Mountains Preserve and came upon the placard dedicated to Lori Ann Piestoa, the first Native American woman to fall in battle for the United States, 
She was killed in the Iraq war, now commemorated, of course, with both a peak uh, and a freeway. I was fascinated to, to read there that her last name translates loosely in the Hopi language as the people who live by the water from a root that connotes water pooled in the desert after a heavy rain. It was meant to be, I thought, and hence this stanza. The close of the traditional Geshem Pute also inspired the penultimate statement of my Tfilah Tamansun, where instead of for blessing and not for cursing, for life and not for death, for sustenance and not for scarcity, I decided to came up with for wetness and not for dryness, for fullness and not for emptiness, for flourishing and not for barrenness. As for the fourth textual source of the prayer, it is Psalm 29, which will be familiar to many from the weekly Kabbalat Shabbat service, from which I take the phrases, the voice of Adonai forming fiery flames, the voice of Adonai shaking the desert. The relevance of this imagery for a monsoon prayer is obvious, but it's worth adding that biblical scholars specifically interpret this Psalm as depicting the passage of a thunderstorm from the Mediterranean Sea over land, first to the great mountains of the north, the Lebanon and Syrian ranges, that is to say Mount Lebanon and, Her and the Hermon in the north of Israel, and thereafter to the desert in the south. The notion of a thunderstorm reaching the desert from the mountains seemed especially appropriate to evoke in my prayer as it suits perfectly the meteorological reality here. Moisture from the great bodies of water to our south gives rise to thunderstorms first in our local mountains, which occasionally due to outflows prompt the formation of additional storms over the desert valleys. Furthermore, the Psalm depicts thunder and lightning as the voice of God. And thus by importing the references to Kol Hashem or Kol Adonai into my prayer, I can suggest the monsoon storm as a potential site of encounter with the divine in our own backyard. Finally, anyone who knows me well knows that I cannot resist a good or perhaps more often bad pun. And so it is at the very close of my tefillah, where, please, Lord, restore our waters as before, Hadesh Memenu Kakedim, riffs on Hadesh Yamenu Kakedim, renew our days as of old, from the close of the Book of Lamentations, recited, of course, whenever the Torah is returned to its ark. Hadesh Memenu, I think, works nicely in two senses, both in restoring the waters that have been absent in the recent expected dry season, and restoring the waters as they once flowed in past years, when the monsoon rains were abundant. And as such also evokes the Meshiv and Mashiv chorus that runs throughout much of the text. This point about the restoration of waters brings us to the important issue of the intended liturgical setting for the prayer. The traditional Tfilat HaGeshem and the statement Mashiv HaRuach Morid HaGashem are recited in accordance with the rainy season in the land of Israel which begins, of course, in the fall and concludes in the spring. But monsoon season, since 2008, officially runs from June 15th to, to September 30th. Prior to that year, it was set to commence with the first occurrence of three consecutive days with an average dew point of 55 degrees or higher. In other words, three humid, relatively humid days. The earliest this has ever transpired in Phoenix is June 17th, while the average date is July 7th, with the heaviest rainfall, of course, typically in later July and August, sometimes continuing into September. So in considering, and here you see this graph according to dates across June uh, into July, the occurrence, the, the onset of monsoon conditions in Phoenix and Tucson. 
So in considering when to set this prayer in the liturgical calendar, I thought to look at the weekly parashiyot that typically fall in June and July to see what might be the best fit thematically. And right away, Parshat Chukat in Bamidbar, the Book of Numbers, jumped out at me. This parasha features the death of Miriam. Uh, and of course, again, there's this whole nice well, this notion of tradition of Miriam's well, and the immediate ensuing lack of water and the strife that this provoked. Thereafter, Moses and Aaron produce water from the rock, but Moses does so in a manner that suggests, at least to God, insufficient trust, hence may marry var, the waters of strife. Later, skirting the land of Edom, the people again thirst. And finally, on the boundary of Moab with the territory of the Amorites, the Israelites gathered to collect water at a place fittingly named Be'er, where, well, where they actually sing a song to a well. And I should just note in passing here that in giving this presentation today, I'm very much thinking about the, the name recently determined, decided upon by Bethel for its uh, uh, library currently being renovated, which is Haber, the well. So I dedicate this to the future promise of, the, of, that, uh, of that new well uh, in our community. So going back to Parashat Hukat, it's hands down the most important parasha for the theme of finding water in the desert. And thus, I felt, constitutes a perfect backdrop for a prayer about the monsoon here in the desert southwest. So I draw substantially on the plot of, the, of this parasha in my prayer. The first three of the remember, forgive stanzas are based uh, on it directly. And I'll just pass through very quickly here, uh, obviously the idea of Miriam, uh, her death, and the failing here that I, for which I ask forgiveness is the fact that whereas Miriam, Moses and Aaron uh, are both mourned properly, the Torah reports that they were mourned for 30 days, nothing is said about Miriam being mourned uh, in, the, in the Torah, okay? Uh, then uh, I just, in the second stanza, I play, I, I concluded with how the site of sanctification submerged in quarrel. And here I'm playing on the name given for the site where uh, this water is, is recovered, which is Kadesh, you know, coming from the Hebrew root for holy or, or to sanctify. And then finally, perhaps the most puzzling uh, of, the, of the stanzas in the prayer, and one that I'm perhaps uh, oops, still not entirely happy with, though I do find it interesting. Um, uh, remember how when God assembled the people that they might drink, then Israel sang to the well, summoning its waters to rise anew. And forgive the motive for their chant, the crushed arms and legs of enemy troops washed away from Wadi Arnon's caves. So first of all, why anew? Uh, because numerous rabbinic sources identify the well that the Israelites come upon later in this parasha as in fact the well of Miriam that has now been restored. As for this business about the crushed arms and legs, this reflects a particularly gory, if nonetheless also fascinating midrash. On the basis of the similarity between Exodus 15.1, Az Yashir Moshe Vnei Yisrael, and, Num, and Bamidbar 21.17, Az Yashir Yisrael, rabbinic sources construct an elaborate tale according to which countless Amorite warriors had planned to ambush the Israelites when they passed through the Valley of Arnon, mentioned just prior in the Torah. This was an extremely narrow canyon with caves on one side of its wall and protruding rocks on another. In a dramatic uh, evocation and reversal of the splitting of the Red Sea, God here brought the two canyon walls together, crushing the Amorites who were hiding in the caves, as well as those who were waiting on the valley floor 
and also creating a mountain highway for the Israelites to traverse. So here the Israelites go over the valley here instead of traversing the seafloor as an exodus. And it's interesting here we're in year 40 of the desert wanderings. And of course, the path crossing the Red Sea occurs you know, in the first year, right after the departure from Egypt. So there's this fascinating parallel that's drawn between this one great song that the Israelites sing in, in Shemot and Exodus and the song that the Israelites sing here in, uh, in Numbers. Uh, and so in order, according to this Midrash, in order to be sure that the Israelites would know of, this, of God's deliverance of them here in Hukat in Numbers, God restored the well of Miriam, whose waters now flowed with the remains, with the gory remains of all these killed enemy fighters. So one could see in that flowing water uh, uh, that recount as it was the deliverance that just transpired, a kind of evocation of the Miriam who was no longer present to sing of this deliverance as she did at the Red Sea. But whereas the Israelite celebration of deliverance at the Red Sea is famous accompanied by the rabbinic tale, according to which God rebukes the angels for celebrating as his creations, namely the Egyptians, drown in the sea. So far as I can tell, there is no similar such qualification of joy in the rabbinic sources that uh, elaborate on what happens in the, the Wadi or the Valley of Arnon. Uh, and as we read as in Proverbs 24, 17, if your enemy falls, do not exult. If he trips, let your heart not rejoice. And so the request for forgiveness here um, is you know, a, a call for forgiveness for this failure to diminish one's joy um, or this failure uh, in taking joy in the, in, the, um, in the demise of the enemy in this episode. So uh, furthermore, the very name of this parasha, Chukat, suits the notion of the monsoon as a kind of law of nature. Indeed, according to one Hebrew dictionary, a definition of one of the possible definitions of hukah is of a fixed and unchanging phenomenon in nature. And I employ the term in precisely this sense in the prayer when I call for on this Shabbat hukat for the monsoon to be renewed as hukah. And finally, the dates uh, of Shabbat hukat, the dates upon which it falls are also very suitable. June 19th this year, and here you see the coming years, early to mid July. Again, right around the time of the onset, typical onset of the monsoon. And if it falls unusually early this cycle, this year, well, again, that suits very nicely the fact that this week is, happens to be monsoon awareness week. So I could say much more about the text of the prayer itself, but I wanna move on to consider a few of the halachic and identity issues that uh, arise out of it. Happy to answer questions or hear your thoughts on the prayer itself when we come in a few minutes to the Q&A. So, we are very accustomed to the notion of a global Jewish liturgy and practice. Yes, we are aware that there are some differences between Israeli practices and diaspora practices. We are aware that there are various rites that have somewhat different texts. The Sephardic Birkat Amazon or Grace After Meals is not quite the same as its Ashkenazi counterpart. And of course, the various movements, reform, conservative, reconstructionist, renewal, have made their own modifications, additions, and omissions to our liturgy. Nonetheless, for the most part, we are not dealing in Judaism with prayer specific to a particular locale or region. In any case, the dislocations of the last century and a half mean that there are very, very few places where Jews are living in communities that have existed uninterrupted for centuries. One could think of a few communities in Italy, especially Rome, presumably a few places in Iran, and a very few other European communities, Prague, Amsterdam, 
also in the land of Israel, Yerushalayim and Jerusalem and, and Safed, Tzfat. But we're dealing with a very, very small percentage of the overall Jewish population. These dislocations and of course the emergence of the state of Israel have led to what we might call both the globalization and eclecticization of Jewish practice. Uh, that is to say, Jewish practices tends to be sort of consistent globally, or you have the same kinds of variations across the globe. And by eclecticization, I mean that there's an increasing tendency to sort of sample, to take from different traditions what one likes. And one sees this in, in culinary practice. In my own family, I think on, on the holiday of Passover, I grew up with a very traditional Ashkenazi diet. And today we'll make a haroset from the Moroccan tradition or the Yemenite tradition, even though we have absolutely nothing to do in our own family history with these traditions. So there's no, there's no doubt something extremely powerful about this state of affairs, the substantial uniformity of Jewish liturgy and this access and cultiva cultivation of Jewish customs from around the world. But there are some examples uh, that survive from pre-modern or early modern times of special occasions, specific liturgies that are present in particular communities. And I think there's also something there that we can, that we can learn from and perhaps try to, to restore or redevelop. And I'm thinking here in particular of the notion of the special Purim, the Purim Katan or Moed Katan, of which we have potentially several dozen examples in which an individual community celebrates its deliverance, its specific deliverance from a particular danger it faced. There's also the specific Ethiopian Jewish holiday of Sigit. The Jews of Rome have their own holiday, Moed di Piombo, Festival of Lead. And we might also mention in this regard, the special Yom Kippur prayer of the high priest for the people of the Sharon region, in Israel that their homes that become their graves that's included in the service of the high priest. So drawing from this, this historical precedent, I want to argue for the value of local prayer, local observance, key to local conditions and needs, what we might call a local Judaism, in addition to, of course, certainly not instead of the global Judaism to which I referred before. And I see my prayer as sort of participating in this effort to foster renewed local Judaism. So, Aside from the general notion, I'm really am coming close to my close here. Aside from the general notion of local or regional prayer, my text also raises the specific question of praying for land that is outside the land of Israel. Given how oriented the Jewish calendar and liturgy is around Eretz Israel, can one argue on the basis of Jewish tradition for the legitimacy of prayer for rain in one's own locality? So the ninth benediction of the Amidah, which you see before you here, the central prayer of Judaism, contains the daily prayer set on Shabbat and is highly illuminating on this front since it is, at least theoretically speaking, a collective prayer for rain for wherever one is. Hence the different dates for which rain, uh, as opposed to merely blessing, uh, is prayed according to whether one is in Israel or in the diaspora. So what I mean here is that this particular statement, um, you know, bless this year, ten uh, talu um, matar, is in Israel, one begins to recite it uh, on the 7th of Cheshvan, two weeks after the end of the fall Sukkot festival. But in Babylonian antiquity, one typically waited 60 days until our early December in keeping with the somewhat different climate and need for rain there. And then in both cases, one continued until Pesach. So theoretically speaking, halakhically speaking, there's no problem with praying for rain um, for, other, for other places outside the land of Israel and at other times. Uh, and indeed, uh, this is specified in a baraita preserved in the, the Talmud Babli, in the Babylonian Talmud, 
The matter depends upon the nature of the seasons and the nature of the localities. In addition, Maimonides, and I won't read this in its entirety, but in his commentary in the Mishnah basically makes the, makes the point clear that it's perfectly reasonable to pray for rain in the place where you live, to pray for rain when you need it, uh, and not to pray for it based on, on some other place, uh, on say the land uh, of Israel. Um, nonetheless, the tradition in most Jewish communities, pretty widespread, has been either to pray according to the needs of the land of Israel or the needs of Babylonia, because it was the site of the most important diaspora, which leads to the strange reality that today in traditional Jewish liturgy in, di in the diaspora, people tend to play, pray for rain according to the climate of Iraq, a country in which no Jews at all are to be found. So the emergence of Jewish communities in the Southern hemisphere in the early modern period did lead to some reconsideration of this issue. And it's interesting that the very first halakha question that we know of from the new world from uh, Brazil was that of when, if at all, the prayer for rain should be said. Since of course, in the Southern hemisphere, rain uh, was, is desired from Nisan to Tishrei, exactly when it is dry in the land of Israel. Sometimes the answer that's been given has been just to omit the traditional prayers, but there have also been efforts to, uh, to say that one should actually reverse the traditional order. That is to pray for rain when one prays for dew in the land of Israel and to pray for dew when one prays for rain uh, in the land of Israel. And I'll just note uh, that in the 19th century, in 19th century America, the leading reform rabbi Isaac Meyer Wise in his Minhag America, his attempt to craft a united American, uniquely American liturgy, advocated praying for rain and dew all year round in accordance with the climate in the Eastern United States. And here I have his Shachrit Amidah, where he has Morid Hatal, Mashiv Haruach, Morid Hagashem, the same size text, because you would always, according to him, say that in the Amidah. In any case, my aim with this prayer is not to abolish or change the traditional orientation vis-a-vis -vis the land of Israel or Babylonia, but rather simply to supplement it by instituting a specific prayer for rain at the appropriate time for here for this location, for this region. And as I've tried to show, there are powerful statements in Jewish tradition and practices that affirm, at least theoretically, the legitimacy of praying for rain in any locality at any time. And now my last little bit, liturgy as environmental activism. And I promise I really am almost done. Prayer for rain strikes me as the perfect place to consider environmental resp responsibility from a Jewish perspective. In the Torah, Rain is something, as we saw a little bit before, rain is something that rewards good behavior, proper divine service. And this presumably stems from the fact that the land of Israel is dependent upon rainfall. Unlike Egypt or Mesopotamia, those great neighboring civilizations, which developed around mighty and highly dependable uh, rivers. Even if we can no longer accept the idea of a God who gives us rain if we do his bidding and withholds it if we do not, uh, this notion still strikes me from a poetic perspective as valuable, as relevant at a time of climate concern or crisis, however one wishes to express what we are currently experiencing, certainly climate discomfort uh, this week in Arizona. It has a certain appeal or power, I would suggest. A metaphor is a valuable one for thinking about nature responding to how we are treating it. And in general, a prayer can stimulate awareness and connection. A key part of this exercise for me is to showcase how liturgy, rather than being the source of alienation that it so often is, can actually engage us with our present and past, our local reality and our land of Israel ideal, with present day concerns and traditional conceptions, 
all at one and the same time. And I see no contradiction here. The one actually reinforces the other. In writing this text, I learned a great deal about and came to feel more at home in Arizona, just as I deepened my knowledge of Tanakh in connection to the land of Israel. By innovating and experimenting, I deepen my connection with tradition. Or to put it differently, in order to innovate and experiment effectively, I need to first brush up on the tradition that I wish to take in a new direction. A text of this nature, precisely by drawing upon and translating Jewish heritage to new conditions, enables, I hope, ancient Jewish texts to speak to con contemporary environmental concerns. Especially here in Arizona, given that we are in a desert where there isn't naturally abundant water, where there is a pronounced seasonal character to our rainfall, we are very well positioned to draw unique and powerful connections with traditional Jewish texts that grapple with a similar reality. That is what I try to do in my Tfilat Hamansu. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. That was just terrific to be part of your Torah and, and your contemporary engagement like in contemporary issues. So thank you so much. It was just amazing. And as I have always the privilege to ask you at home, I want to leave the floor to people who have questions. And I saw Stan Mervis, you have, yes, you have a you. question. You have your hand up. Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for this talk. I really like appreciate the depth and the creativity that, that went into this. I was going to ask, you really answered my question. I was going to ask um, how over time different communities uh, were, would alter their tefillah for local environmental concerns, but you gave some examples from, yeah, uh, yeah so, uh, and then, um, and I was going to, um, tell, I was going to tell you if you didn't already know, but you know about the, the, uh, Yitzchak Abu Avdei Fonseca, the Sheila Chuvot from uh, Chaim Shabtai. But I think that he, he, he concluded that you should not say tefillah to Geshem in the, um, in, in, in the summer. It, is that right? I mean, I, if I, I remember I read that a long time ago. So I don't, I don't have all the, those details at the top of my head at this moment. I, in preparing for this, I went through all this material and consulted a lot of literature on it. There have been... So just on the first point, I mean, even going back to the Middle Ages, you had people, for example, a, a scholar in Spain, uh, the Roche, who basically said in, there was a, an extensive drought and he actually wanted to, he made an argument for extending the saying of Meshiva Ruach, Meshiva Ruach that year up to Shavuot in response to the drought. And um, again, I don't remember the specific, what specific sages have said. I, actually, I think in the case of the responsum uh, for for Recife in Brazil, that's the, the community that, that posed this question of what to do in the Southern Hemisphere. The response from a scholar was, it would be perfectly legitimate to reverse the order and to pray for the pray for rain in what would be for Eretz Yisrael the summer and pray for dew in what would be for Eretz Yisrael the winter. But he said that one should defer uh, to see if a truly great authority uh, confirms this and, and, and offers this legitimacy. So I think there's an issue always in, in the halachic tradition between what is theoretically acceptable, what you can theoretically argue for from a halachic per, uh, perspective versus what, what the truly great sages are really willing to endorse, which reflects a certain general traditional caution about instituting innovations that, uh, that who knows where they could potentially lead. And I think also a general interest in maintaining 
a uniformity of practice across the Jewish world or across at least one. That, that, you know, that's, that's interesting. That's how I remember it that now. And it, and it could be now that when you bring it up, there could have been a conversal problem there. It could be that the that Chaim Chaptai in Salonika was, uh, didn't consider Yitzchak Abolodeh Fonseca to be enough of an authority because he had been born a conversal. So yeah. just uh, got me thinking yeah. about this uh, particular issue. And um, I guess I guess my last question to you is a personal question you have to answer, but are you going to add uh, Marie Gishmei Malkoshin to your Shmona Esser? Oh, geez. Um, I don't know that I'll add that. I mean, as, as my wife said at the beginning, we are planning to recite the prayer of Bethel this Shabbat, and there are a few other communities around the Southwest. I've sent it out to various places, and there are a few other communities that said they would, that they are planning to do so as well. Whether they in fact do so, I don't know. Um, I mean, again, I don't... It's not my view, it's not my belief in any way that saying this prayer will have any sort of effect. I think, <laughs> if anything, it's as much, it's as much the sort of, again, the use of as liturgy as a, as a consciousness-raising activity and as a pedagogical activity that, that, for me, this is what this is ultimately about. And as a kind of creative, you know, output and as a way for me to just express, get my frustration out how you know, damn hot and dry it's, it's been in Arizona these last few years. So that's really what it's about less, you know, me about trying to argue that there needs to be some innovation. Although I would say, going back to this idea of local Judaism, I do think there's a value um, for here and there for liturgy and practices that do in a way sort of reflect particular regions or communities in their history, their traditions, their realities. And that's what I was trying to do in that section where you know, I evoke the special Purim and some of these holidays that particular communities or particular locales have. That is, you know, that is part of the, the reality of the history of Jewish practice that I think we've sort of lost because there's just been this tremendous demographic, you know, um, balagan in the last century and a half. Yeah, it's really actually unusual. Kehillah Kedusha, the president of that. Uh, Sorry, for, say again. For Kehillah Kedusha or Kehillah Kedosh for a, yeah. A, yeah, indigenous customs are deeply embedded in the Tosafists and uh, yeah and so many places in the middle ages and early modern period and so I think there is a place to restore that but I guess to evoke what I said before I am obviously not the person of the stature to you know to try to, to I really do this I, I can sort of throw the idea out there and yeah. you know if, yeah. if people who are greater than me are interested and it leads somewhere great probably it won't and that's fine I'm having fun giving this uh, issue yeah. But I will also just say on the point that you raised in at the great synagogue in Sydney, and I skipped this for the sake of time, there was a rabbi there, sort of rather iconoclastic rabbi, early 20th century, who also instituted basically, um, you know, a reversal of the prayer. And they prayed for, they prayed for rain beginning in the spring, and they are spring, uh, and they prayed for dew beginning in our fall in accordance with the needs and reality in Australia. And this reflected, in a sense, his iconoclastic nature, his anti-Zionism also, that he didn't want things to be too oriented around the land of Israel. Um, uh, Hertz, the chief rabbi of the British Empire, was always scolding him for his various innovations. And I was in touch with the people in Sydney you know, recently, and they confirmed for me that this is no longer practiced. I mean, you know, this was sort of in his time, and it's basically been, you know, overturned, it was overturned decades ago. Though apparently in a few of the Sidurim in the synagogue, you can still see his innovation, like a, the page that he wrote about all this, you know, taped into some of the, to some of the Sidurim uh, that, that still survives. Anyway, maybe there are other comments or 
questions. Yeah, I would I would love to hear other questions or comments from other people. But if not, I also would have a a comment on end question. Well, in the interest of time, since we're about three minutes out, please call us your question. Anyone else but me? I see the yeah, whatever. Okay, so um, also question I'm sure could be posted in the chat and um, we all know each other here mostly. So um, people can also come, you can also come back later too. But, um, you know, I found it very intriguing and peculiar that you you actually, other than like, for, for example, the case in Sydney, you managed to actually have a strong Israel connection strong people of Israel connection and at the same time bring in the local regional connection when in your later stanzas with the Hopi fighter and her mm -hmm. kind and then also you know then I was wondering what is the the rounder of rounds the repairers of roof um oh. if you want to just say yes. a, just a minute about yes. these very quickly. So the, the, the rounder of rounds, repair of roofs, there I'm referring to Choni Hamagel, uh, an important figure in rabbinic literature uh, who draws a circle and then basically, you know, sort of demands of God that he deliver rain. It seemed, uh, I gave an earlier version of this talk um, where I didn't yet have that stanza and a number of people sort of asked about Choni and it seemed like Choni's got to be in there somehow. So I, I worked him in, again, in a bit of a riddling character. Uh, the rounder of rounds referring to this him as the circle drawer, which was related to sort of his his magical practice. And then and then what did I say? Roof, the whole roof. And then the thing about the roof, because something uh, one of the explanations of Magel is that that refers to someone who was a roofer uh, at the time. And so people some people think that that was his occupation. So that's uh, that's what that business is referring to. And then on this question of, you know, sort of having a strong Israel, land of Israel connection and a strong local connection. It goes back to something I tried to say at the end. My, my strong, I very much, I very much like hybrids or hybridity. Uh, and my strong feeling is that, whereas I think a lot of people are concerned, well, if you go too much in one direction, then you're departing from something else. And sometimes that's the case. In the case of this Australian rabbi, yes, he he wanted to move away from the practice in the land of Israel as a way of distancing himself from the Zionist movement. But my strong feeling is that actually you can pursue both sides at the same time and they mutually reinforce one another. And I think this really comes to me from my study of the Italian Jewish tradition where I, time and again, you encounter these figures who were just so incredibly deeply rooted in Jewish tradition and so incredibly deeply rooted in Italian tradition. And you actually see how their pursuit of the Jewish Jewish tradition reinforced actually led to the strengthening of their engagement with the Italian tradition. And so that's the kind of model that I aspire to in creating this and many other th things that I do. And at least the way that I like to think about Jewish culture is something that doesn't need the pursuit of Jewish culture and Jewish learning shouldn't, it need not detract from one's engagement with general learning and with general society, but in fact can lead you to engage more deeply with the general. Uh, and that's certainly what happened for me in, in writing this. I, I mean, I already knew a little bit about the monsoon, but it led me to do all kinds of research about the monsoon uh, here scientifically, something that I haven't been able to work into the, either the prayer of the shiur yet, but maybe at a future point is I've also been interested in exploring Native American traditions in this region about rain and specifically the summer rainy season. So again, the, pursuing this Jewish prayer has led me in all kinds of non-Jewish directions and 
Uh, and so the hybrid is, is truly possible, I think. So this was just amazing, amazing to see the depth and the breadth and the width of your learning uh, in all directions, Torah, liturgy, um, you know, academic interests, science, weather science. Thank you so much. And thank you for everyone who joined us here today on this lecture. I was truly a treat, a cooling treat. Well, well I <laughs> wish, thank you to everyone for your time and interest. And I wish you all that you stay cool in the coming uh, days. And I wish that you, that we all get very wet uh, in the weeks ahead.